Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. We absolutely nailed it. Perfect. We're going to be good at this podcast thing. I think it'll be fun. And the thing that I love is, like you said, I don't I don't like to be in front of a camera trying to see if I can sound good on my own. A conversation is so much more natural and so much, it flows so much better. Yes, yeah, it, it feels a little more normal. I've always joked in life that uh, I'm a hammer and nails guy. I'm not that smart, but uh, I do like to ask questions and I like to learn. So this is going to be a fun experience. I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the years and it'll be fun to it'll be fun to kind of have a place where we can ask those questions we can dig in and try to help you know find some answers for ourselves and for other people and it's going to be nice it's going to be nice for me to have someone along the way to straighten me out <laughs> i think it goes both ways we found that in our business already haven't we so we we uh just so the listeners know, we, we run Illuminate Billing. We do medical billing. We help mental health professionals, residential treatment centers, substance abuse providers with their medical billing. And that's kind of been the way that it has gone so far, right? I, I uh, ask a lot of questions and talk really fast, and, and you already know all of the answers. So I'm <laughs> constantly playing catch up with you, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think you bring a lot to the table. Um, you know, something that I've really loved about working with Illuminate over the last, you know, seven years or so <clears throat> is, is, is the passion to really help people that are in recovery, to help people get insurance benefits, right? Because they've got to be able to pay for it. And they come to treatment not knowing if their insurance is going to pay or not. And we can take a lot of that guesswork out. So, you know, we, we spent a lot of time um, doing the authorizations. That's something that I do. And, and we have a whole team of people that do that now and really fighting for those clients' rights and pushing back to the insurance companies to make sure that, that clients have that peace of mind to know that their treatment is going to be covered and that that's not one of the stressors as they go through that process. Which I think is a little bit of a confusing thing about the addiction recovery world. You've got some free solutions out there, right? You've got the anonymous groups. You've got some other, you know, kind of community-oriented groups. And then you have professional care. And I think, I think, you know, this professional care or therapy or rehab kind of has a history of being a rich man's game. A little bit right like this hasn't always been a covered benefit that's kind of a new thing yep i don't know that even all of our listeners would necessarily know that that's something that is kind of interesting i didn't realize that for a long time this has historically been a cash business but because of affordable care 
this kind of treatment is generally covered by most commercial insurance companies. Does that sound right? Well, yeah, and, and interestingly enough, as states continue to expand <clears throat> with Medicaid, uh, Medicaid is also in many states providing a lot of substance abuse and mental health care as well, which has really been huge. It has an up and a downside to it is that, you know, some of these states that have been expanded for a long time with Medicaid, they'll have facilities that have two or 300 clients within them. And then I question, you know, what level of healing really gets done there and treatment really gets done there. But then you also have this whole population of people that have been excluded, you know, with Obamacare and with the expansion of, of insurances, the marketplace, that you have this whole group of people that have insurance now that can get treatment. And then with the Medicaid expansion, you have, a, it, you know, it just circles, it makes a much bigger circle and brings a whole lot more people in to get that treatment. You know, with the goal, I think that over time, if everybody has access to treatment, that societally, we will be better off and things will improve significantly. Yeah, certainly. Certainly the, the professional health is somewhere that can't be shortcut. Right. And, and I think that's the other, one of the things that I think will be really fun for us to dig into on this podcast is, you know, in medicine, there's a lot of debate, right. About treatment and what works, right. You've got kind of, I'm thinking in, in one example, you know, this, you know, the MD doctor versus the DO, you know, who's kind of a homeopathic oriented doctor and then a chiropractor. Right. And they and they don't necessarily all agree on how to fix every problem, but they all bring some good to the table. And and I feel like the mental health world is not immune to that. Some are some are kind of pro medicine assisted treatment. Some are, you know, anti that and you need to get off the substance as fast as possible. And I think I think that's going to be one that's intriguing for me, you know, to dig into. Yeah, it's interesting too, is that, you know, behavioral health as an, as an industry or a practice is, <clears throat> it's fairly new if you want to compare it to the practice of medicine and, and other things like that. Behavioral health, you know, within the last 50, 60 years has really started to, de- started to develop and come into its own profession. And so there's still a lot of gray areas when it comes to getting insurance payment for sure. But what's the best treatment and, and research to show what's best practice in those kinds of uh, treatment programs? And so there's still, I mean, I love that everybody, you know, kind of has an experience and they can share what helped them to heal. And then you can kind of try and incorporate that in. And I don't think there's any one um, tool or approach that's more effective than the other. And as the research shows, um, it's really about connection and creating a rapport and feeling like you belong somewhere is probably has as much or more therapeutic value than anything else. So it will be very interesting to watch the behavioral health industry continue to mature and um, and really become a stronghold and helping people. You mentioned the social aspect. It's awesome how there's there there's an, a social part of you know recovery but that that plays into our, our mental health and also our emotional health. So I think that's one of the things that we've seen over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years is this rise of public awareness of emotional intelligence, right? That's a total buzzword right now. And so some of these skills 
you know, are necessary for recovery, but are really just valuable for any, any human being, period. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, as I've, as I've been around people in recovery, <clears throat> you know, some family members, some, you know, that have come to me for treatment, the thing that I find really interesting is their journey is not a whole lot different than my journey. And the challenge is at the very core, am I worthy enough? Am I good enough? Um, you know, am I, you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier, am I an imposter? Am I just posing? Am I faking this? Um, and, and some of those core issues are the same for all of us. It just manifests in different ways. Um, and I think it's really important to kind of, um, put us all on the same playing ground. Nobody's superior to another, um, you know, based on the challenges that they have. Um, so yeah, excellent point. Yeah. And, and then there's a spectrum there, right? Because, you know, that, that kind of ranges from insecurity, right? Which I think all humans feel on, you know, mm -hmm. some level or another. And then as that deepens, you know, it can turn into a little bit of an imposter syndrome, right? which is a challenge for me when it comes to a podcast, right? I'm not the licensed professional like you are. I'm just the guy who asks lots of dumb questions. So, um, you know, am I the right guy to be on here? And, you know, to me, the answer is yes, I'm willing to do it. Right. And that, and that isn't my gut reaction. My gut reaction is there's somebody else who's better qualified, but the one thing that I think is going to matter and pushes me forward is am I willing to be the one who does it? And that's enough, right? That's enough of the answer. And so yep. that, that's going to help me push through that imposter syndrome. So, so you go from, you know, insecurity to something maybe a little bit deeper, and maybe those are the same thing, but that extends into, you know, anxiety or deeper stress, right? Depression, some of those other things that are not just an emotional, you know, short-term weakness, right? Those are things that can be dealt with, with positive thoughts, but also can be much deeper, right? And need really professional help and maybe medical help. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, you know, that's, that's some of the questions that, that are in my mind is, you know, that I want to address and also ask that, you know, as we continue to have guests on the podcast and, <clears throat> and talk to, um, just a myriad of different people at different places in life and, and cultures and all of that is to find out what really, what is the consensus about when do you need additional help? When do you need to go seek treatment from a professional and, and what kind of things can you do on your own? And, and I will say that none of us, I don't believe anybody can do it alone. I think that's one of the myths that's um, kind of perpetrated by trauma and abuse and um, and society is that, you know, the only person I can really trust is myself and people have proven to me, you know, maybe my primary caregivers or maybe my peers or people have proven to me that I can't trust them and that they're going to turn on me and that they will hurt me. And so I can only depend on myself. Um, and that's one of the biggest fallacies is that, you know, maybe those weren't the right people that you could depend on, but there's got to be a group um, um, or people a support network that you can learn to depend on and understand. I might not be able to depend on this person to tell me the truth every time, but I can depend on them to show up when I just need someone to listen. And I might not be able to depend on this person to show up every time, but when I do get a hold of them, man, they really have some great wisdom for me, right? 
and start to learn what relationships, healthy relationships look like and how to navigate some of that as an adult, as opposed to that wounded child, you know, who carries some of the trauma. I'm looking forward to some of the guests that we've coming on here. I think it's going to be fun to talk to some professionals, right? Find out some of the things that are actually working for them and their practices and in their facilities and with their patients. I think it's going to be super fun to get some success stories here. Some of the things that are happening in individuals' lives that work for them. Cause I don't, I don't think that that's always exactly the same criteria. I think we're all doing similar things, but not necessarily the same thing. So that's exciting. It's going to be fun to get some people on here. Yeah. And there's nothing I love more than a success story, right? Somebody getting on here and talking about how they went through the trenches, how they, you know, failed and came back at it and they tried again and again, and now they're feeling and and finding some success and some recovery, right? I mean, illuminating recovery is all about helping us understand our own journey. And when you can hear those success stories, to me, that's one of the coolest things ever. I mean, nothing gives me warm fuzzies more than a, a an amazing story. Amazing stories and some really smart tools, which <clears> reminds <throat> me, I heard a, uh, a little presentation that you gave a while back to a group and you talk about some tools in there. You talk about some fear, you talk about hope, you talk about forgiveness, Print. you talk about Johari's window in it, which is a, which is a cool one. So I think, uh, I think we ought to share that with our listeners. What do you think? Well, you know, other than the imposter syndrome piece that I feel every time, you know, I think about me presenting, which I love the information, like that's what makes it so exciting is I'm so much more involved in the information and sharing what I've learned and how it's impacted my life that I can kind of get past that piece. But I think you're right. I think there is a lot of super great tools and thought processes. I love getting people to think outside the box and think outside of their their comfort zone. And definitely, I think this does that. Well, let's get to it. I want to talk. I'm not going to talk about the office stuff because that's boring. I'm going to talk about what I like and what I, you know, what's exciting. And with a topic like, can healing be accelerated through forgiveness? Um, that's kind of a hot topic and it can be fairly controversial. So don't leave until we get to the end because, you know, my hope is that I'll change your mindset about what that looks like and, and change your perceptions. Okay. Um, Let's see if I can do it the right way. So we talked about, Chris gave a little bit about who I am. Um, one, of the, one of the, as I've, I've been, a, I'm a therapist, I'm a clinical mental health counselor. Um, I've had private practice. I've worked at UVU teaching in the behavioral health department there, which was just, I love that stuff. I'm passionate about it. Women with trauma issues is something that when I was doing individual um, counseling, my private practice, that's what I focused on. And it's, uh, it's a huge honor to do that kind of work. I love it and, and, um, and I, I love adventures and I love seeking truth. So hopefully we'll find some truth, um, our individual truth here tonight. Truth is always, um, truth will always be truth regardless of lack of understanding, disbelief or ignorance. And I think this uh, quote is a great segue into a little story I wanna tell you. There was, um, and maybe you've heard this, there's six blind men who lived in Indostance. And um, they're blind, and they had never experienced an elephant before, and they had heard that an elephant was coming to town. And so wanting to know what the elephant was like, they all took off to go meet the elephant. And as you notice, they all experienced a different part of the elephant. And in that experience, 
you know, one of the other guys at the back would say, you know, this, this looks, it's like a rope. This elephant is like a rope. And the guy in the front would say, dude, you're crazy. It's like a spear. It's nothing like a rope. And so you can imagine, and I like to think about this story. I often remind myself of this story when I'm in a situation where I don't always appreciate what somebody's sharing with me. And I remind myself that I might not have the whole picture. And so if we can kind of open our minds to the idea that maybe we don't have the whole picture, not only tonight, but in life, it helps us to learn from other people that are different than us. Um, I have a few goals, and safety is always important. As a therapist, safety is always important. And I'm going to share some ideas with you, and I'm going to ask you, as we talk about things, to focus on your emotions. Um, and because usually the other thing people focus on is their stories that they tell themselves. Right? And when I focus on the stories I tell myself, I end up spinning in my head. So if you focus on your emotions, you own those. Those are yours, and you can do something with them. And then let's just be seekers of truth. Let's figure out you know, what's true for us. So I want to talk about first what forgiveness is not. <clears throat> and there's you know, a lot of misconceptions of what forgiveness is. But what it is not, and what I'm not talking about it is, as being, is being approval of something that's happened. Um, excusing it, justifying it, pardoning it, reconcil recon reconciliation. Um, you know, a lot of people say, I, I need to forgive. I need to forgive someone. What's your name? Zach. Can I pick on you, Zach? I need to forgive Zach for what he did, right? The forgiveness I'm talking about has nothing to do with Zach, right? Um, it's not about turning a blind eye, you know, and, and ignoring it or forgetting it. I hear people talking, I think religiously people say a lot of times forgive and forget. I don't think that's possible. I do not think it's possible to forget something that's going on or that a wound or a, a something that happened, right? It's impossible to forget that. And because of the way we know the body stores information, um, Tina talked a little bit about the way the brain functions. I don't think it's possible to forget. So we can wipe that one out. That is not what forgiveness is. It's not pretending and minimizing. It's certainly not about trust, and it's not about reunification. The, tr the forgiveness I'm talking about has nothing to do with that. The forgiveness I'm talking about, I think, has to happen first before you can consider anything else, okay? <clears throat> so forgiveness, a little bit of forgiveness defined of what I am talking about, and I love the serenity prayer. Um, they've said that, you know, at any AA meeting that I've ever attended, they've had the serenity prayer there, and, and I never can get it right, but I love the meaning of it. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There are things that are within our realm of, of influence, and there are things that are outside our realm of influence. And we've got to be able to figure out what those are or we end up spinning a lot and wasting some time. So I'm talking about being able to surrender some of the things that aren't ours. That, that I think is forgiveness. I'm talking about being able to let go of the emotions that come with wounds and hurts. Okay? I'm, I'm talking about being able to break the chains that keep us bound to our to our offenders, I'm going to call them offenders because there's all sorts of different kinds of ways that we, that we get hurt. Um, and it's also about setting clear and safe boundaries. I would never in a hundred years, and if, if you ever hear me say something that sounds like, like this is what I said, I'm not ever saying it, I would never instigate anybody ever going into an unsafe situation or going back to get abused over and over again. That is not what forgiveness is. That, is. that is not what we're talking about. And it's about healing the heart, our hearts, right? Our individual hearts. 
Forgiveness is freedom. For me, at the very end of a process of forgiving, it's freedom. Um, and, and I love this, I'll read the one quote is at the top. Forgiveness is unlocking the door and setting someone free and realizing that you were the prisoner. I think that, that kind of gives a little bit better perspective of what forgiveness is. It has nothing to do with Zach, for instance, in this case. And I'm going to pick on Zach a couple times if he's okay with that. Okay. <clears throat> so I want to talk about a couple ideas really quick to kind of prep you or give you some things to think about as we go to the, to the big point at the end. And perception is a big piece of, of how we experience things. And it's going to be a big piece of how we, how we experience forgiveness. I put the Jahari, the Jahari Square up here. How many of you are familiar with the Jahari Square? You've seen it before? And it's just simply, and I put it here because it represented some parts of, of perception to me. In, in all of our lives, right, there's things that we know about ourselves. For instance, you know about me and I know about me, right? And then there's things that, that I know about me that you don't know about me. There's things that you know about me that I don't know about myself. That's a little concerning. And there's things that I don't know about me and you don't know about me, right? So that's the Jahari square in a nutshell. <clears throat> um, other things that, that affect the way we perceive our world and the people around us is projections. And the best way I can think of to describe projections is to tell you a story. One day, um, uh, when my kids were young, and they, were all, they all came home from school, and I just happened to have met them in the hallway that particular day. And, and it was interesting, because they were all chatting and talking to me and telling me about their day. And, and it just seemed a little unusual, because they were all doing it, and they were all talking at the same time. And it was really cool. To just, it was just fun to be part of that. Well, the very next day, coincidentally, they all came in the door again the very same way. And I happened to meet them in the hallway the same way. Only my experience was very different. They're chatting and going at it, and I am angry, and I'm upset, and I want them to be quiet, and I want it to go away, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I thought that that was a really, I mean, it just hit me in such a way that I'm like, they didn't do anything different. That was not about them. And I was projecting what was going on about them. And I had the, because it was such a profound experience, I had the, I don't know what it was, but, but I, I was able to, and you'll see my hand go back here because this is how I think about it, is I, and I put up there metacognition. You guys know what metacognition is? Metacognition is the ability to be aware of what's going on inside of you, to be kind of the observer um, of what's going on inside your own body, to be able to think about what your thoughts are, to observe what your emotions are from an observational kind of a perspective, okay? So metacognition. So I practiced some metacognition stuff, and I don't even know if I knew what it was back then. But I started to look at these two situations and recognize what was different about the second day. Why did I feel so much different about that day than the first? And recognize that there was something that happened that morning that totally triggered me. And I was upset about it, and I was bringing that into my relationships. I didn't know that. And had I not had the ability to go back and look at that, I would have never known. Projection. If you don't think projection affects everything in our lives, it does. So being able to be aware of it is important. Emotions. Um, I mentioned it before, and I'm, I'm just going to jump over a little bit, and we'll come to it closer um, later. That, that emotions are ours. We can own those. They're ours. My emotions are. Zach's emotions are his, but my emotions are mine, and I can own those. And, and we talked about this, you know, getting stuck in the story. So 
And then the other piece is curiosity. Curiosity always, always helps us, well, I would think, I'll say always, often can help us to process things. So for instance, with the situation with my kids coming in and being angry, in order to be able to look at that from an objective point of view, I had to not be judging myself. I had to not be harsh with myself. I had to be kind, right? I was curious about what was going on for me. What was happening there? What was this about? So curiosity can help us look at things in a, in a much more open way and, and, and lower some of the emotions and the triggers that we have. And then I want to talk about hope for just a minute. <clears throat> um, when, I was in, when I was going to school, and then even when I was teaching at UVU, um, human development was one of the topics that I studied and that I taught. And Eric Erickson had developed this theory about human development, and it was a little different than everybody else's theory, and I liked it because it, uh, of the way I, I, I conceptualize things, and so it, w it helped me to conceptualize each step of development. And if you'll just notice, that very first step of development is ages zero to one. The conflict, so Erickson felt that every, st every stage of development had a conflict. And at age zero to one, the conflict was trust or mistrust. So as you can imagine, whether a child can trust their caregivers will impact how they develop in that stage. And as you also can imagine, how they develop in the first stage is gonna, is gonna affect how they develop through the rest of the stages, right? So there's just several different reasons why someone might struggle in developing um, through that trust-mistrust. Um, it could be that parents, you know, that parents have not learned good parenting skill, and that maybe they, they are, you know, they're scary to their children, and at the same time, you know, when you fall down and, scr and scratch your knee, what's the first thing a child wants to do? Jump up and run to mom or dad, right? But if mom or dad is scary to them or is hurting them, then they hit this conflict, right? It's like, wait, I wanna, I wanna get nurtured, but it's scary to get nurtured. So there's conflict. That's not the only reason it happens. Let's say um, a child is premature and is in the hospital for a long period of time. And they experience that as, um, traumatic, or maybe they have to go in for heart surgery and they're away from mom and dad or they don't have that close connection. That can also interrupt some of these pieces. So you can see there's a wide continuum of this development of trust-mistrust. And, and Erickson believed that you also create, as you develop through these, you, you acquire these virtues. And I'm gonna call them virtues or characteristics. And the first one is hope. And so, Here's the good news about hope then. If, if you take this idea and if you accept that Erickson's theory has some truth to it, then hope is a developmental characteristic. And if hope is a developmental characteristic, then we can all go back and focus on hope and gain some of that virtue or that characteristic of hope, right? And I'll tell you, and some of the things that I do is um, at work is I read through clinical, you know, histories of people and I call the insurance company and I tell them so that they can get authorization. And I can't tell you how many times I read through one of those uh, assessments that says I feel hopeless. There's no point for me to be here, right? So this is why I bring this up. It's a big deal. And the reason why we can develop hope in any of those other virtues is because of the plasticity of the mind. Our mind can change. It's always changing. It will change from the day we die. Um, Zach, you want to help me with a demonstration for just a minute? You good with that? You want to come up here for a sec? 
Yay, Zach. Yeah, yes, please sit down. So, okay, Zach, I, I need you to be kind of, you know, block it out because you're going to be the bad guy for a minute. You're going to be the offender, right? And if you don't take anything else away from this, from this presentation, please see if you can capture this concept that I want to show you. Um, okay, so give me some, an idea of something that, so Zach and I, let's say Zach and I have a, a platonic relationship of some sort, and Zach, you know, we've been cohorts or whatever, and, and Zach has violated my trust in some way. Do you guys want to come up with a reason or a way that he's violated my trust? He ate your peanuts and they weren't salt. Holy crud. You ate my peanuts? Well, that's a huge violation. Matter of fact, I feel betrayed because you did that. And because I feel betrayed, I have all sorts of energy and emotion around what you've done. And I, don't, I can't trust you anymore, Zach. I, I want to hurt you. I want to hurt you back and do the same thing to you that you did to me and eat those peanuts. I, um, I don't, I don't want to, you know, you're frustrating to me and, and I have a lot of emotion about what you did and I think you should apologize and I think you should fix it and I think that it's all your fault that I'm having these emotions. Can you guys see where all my energy's going? Some good peanuts. <laughs> right? They were way good peanuts. The piece I want you to see is that in this scenario, all of my energy is going to Zach. All of my power is going to Zach. I'm putting it all in his basket, right? Um, how many you guys are familiar with Brene Brown? Who knows how she defines blame? How is blame defined in her research? A way to discharge pain and discomfort. I just gave Zach subconsciously most of the time, all of my pain and discomfort, right? Because I don't want it, it hurts, it's painful. And I gave it to Zach. Now here's the funny thing, when you give away your pain and discomfort, you give away your ability to do anything with it because you just gave it to Zach, you're expecting Zach to fix it. I expected Zach to fix it. Only Zach can't fix it. And so I'm stuck in this place of not being able to move. So my suggestion is that instead of Instead of blaming, notice that we have that tendency to want to do that, to discharge that pain and discomfort, and we're going to own it. I recently read a book called Extreme Ownership. So I'm not telling you to own what Zach did to me, right? I'm not to own what the other person did, but own your emotions, own your feelings, own your experience. And for me, it's extreme ownership because I can't tell you how many times I want to give it away. I want to give it away. It hurts. It's painful. But own it, and when you own it, you now have the freedom to do something with it. And I could talk and talk all night long, because this is a pretty passionate topic. I wanted to tie it into the 12 steps, because I think they're phenomenal. I mean, it's not the only way to do healing, but it's phenomenal. And I just happened to come across this um, little simple summary that somebody had done of the 12 steps and what the 12 steps were to them. And I just thought it was so interesting that they were exactly, well not exactly, but matched so closely to some of the concept that I just talked about today. So I think in talking about concepts of forgiveness in this scenario, that these are really concepts of healing and our journey, our human journey in life to healing and growth and connection. Um, hope is there, faith and courage and integrity and willingness humility, discipline, and action are all super valuable things. And I would say that courage is right in there with willingness. Um, or, or, I mean, I'm sorry, I was going to say curiosity, which is one of the pieces, and, and all of those. And so there's a, it's an interesting piece. 
Um, it's been an honor to be here, and it's been a privilege to be part of this community event. I think we should definitely have more of them. Um, super valuable. Any questions or thoughts? You work in the building? <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> Listen, if you want to know why I'm there, come and ask me, because... I was just back there thinking, like, I trust you with, like, anything. <laughs> Thanks for your insight there, Shelley. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to tune back in and join us on our journey through shedding light on mental health, mental illness, and addiction recovery.